Welcome, one and all, to another exciting edition of The George Sanders Show. This week we'll be discussing a number of cinematic milestones. It's the 100th anniversary of the release of Ingeborg Holm, Victor Seastrom's uh, social realist film, kind of pioneer in the work there. Uh, and then we'll be jumping 60 years ahead to talk about uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain, which is uh, about the exact opposite of Ingeborg Holm. We'll also be discussing the career of Burt Lancaster, who would have turned 100 this week. Tons of music this week, and we'll also talk about Lou Reed, who passed away tragically um, earlier this week. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hi, Mike. Oh, I also didn't mention that we're talking. We're going to pick our Cinema Central uh, social problem films. Yes, and hopefully by the time we do that, I will remember what my pick was. <laughs> well, as long as it's not mine, then we're okay. Uh, well, do you want to discuss uh, Ingeborg Holm? Let's do that. Okay. And uh, since it's a silent movie, we don't actually have a clip from it, so we're just going to play some Lou Reed music. Yeah. They're taking her children away Because they said she was not a good mother They're taking her children away Because of the things that they heard she had done The black Air Force sergeant was not the first one And all of the drugs she took Everyone, everyone And I am the water boy So, like you, like you said in the opening, this this week marks the 100th anniversary of the release of Ingeborg Holm, filmed by Swedish director Victor Seastrom, and it was kind of his breakthrough film, and it's also generally considered one of the first, if not the first, realist feature films. Which there's a lot of uh, terms in that in that phrase that are controversial, like <laughs> what is the first, what is a feature, and what is realist. But we don't really need to get into that. The point is that. It is. It's a milestone. It's a, it's a milestone work, and and it was, if nothing else, it was a milestone in the career of Seastrom, who is one of the the most important and influential directors of the of the silent era. So, speaking of which, we're going to use the uh, Hollywood pronunciation of his name when uh, in the 1920s when he moved over to the U.S. and started making movies. Uh, he was credited 
as Seastrom instead of uh, his actual Swedish name, which we looked up on the internet and appears to be pronounced Hoistrom or something like that. Well, so we're not going to try and do that. No, we're not. We're going with Seastrom. Y- Yodorowsky is about as hard as, as we're going to make it for yeah. ourselves this week. So. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, let's talk about the the film itself. You know, outside of its influence, it's it's basically a a social problem film. It's about a a woman whose uh, husband dies unexpectedly, and she's left with a, a great deal of debt, and she can't earn a living because she's got you know an illness herself. So because there's no social safety net in Sweden at the time. She's forced into a workhouse, basically, and her children are put into foster homes. And this makes her very sad, and she's not allowed to go and visit them when they're sick. And then most of them all die. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good, it's a feel-good movie. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's made in 1913, so it's not... It doesn't look like a modern film, although you know there are some elements of, of modern film that that harken back to the kind of style that that Seastrom uses here. But it doesn't have like the Hollywood kind of editing style. Most of oh, the no. shots are they're long shots and they're long takes. Well, the each camera, scene, I don't think there's a single cut in any scene. The, there are cuts. There are cuts to like insert shots of like a, a text as they're like reading a letter that they get. Well, yeah. And uh, occasionally the camera will like pan to to reframe as characters move uh, to the edge of the frame. So the camera will pan to follow them and keep them kind of centered in the action. Well, not really centered, but keep them in in the frame. Uh, but for the most part, it's it's a very static movie with with very little editing. But that doesn't mean that it's not stylized. And this is the kind of thing that, that David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson talk a lot about when they're talking about early cinema is, is even though they're not using kind of the Hollywood editing and, and techniques that, that would become dominant in the 20s and, and 30s, uh, the directors are still directing the action and they're still you know utilizing cinematic techniques. And it's mostly through the way that characters move about in the frame. Uh, so my, my question to you is, is how did this strike you? Did, did it seem overly static and, and boring to you? Or were you able to kind of get in, in uh, and uh, jibe with the, the particular kind of, of formal approach that Seastrom used? Oh, I rolled with it just fine. I, I, I've never really had a problem with um, static... Films, I, I, you know, films where it's just the camera sits there. I'm, I'm totally cool with it. Um, for the most part, it doesn't seem like a, a, a tedious act to me at all. Um, and I grew up watching silent movies, so uh, you know, it's, it's never been a difficulty for me. So I was, yeah, I was on board with this. And you know, as long as this story is interesting and it's played well, I think you know, you can, you can get away with a lot. And I, th- I think this movie's. Uh, easy to grasp and there's you know it, it's it's not a chore you know it's you know I've, I've watched plenty of movies that feel like a chore and many of them are, are much more contemporary than this film <laughs> uh, but no this movie you know it it, it flies you know it, I wouldn't say it flies by but it, it moves at a steady pace you know the the story progresses um fluidly and and uh, organically and um yeah it, I, th- I thought it's I thought it's a very very good film 
And you've seen other Seastrom stuff, right? But this is the first, like, in, in his chronology, this is the yeah, first... This, this is the earliest I've seen. Uh, the, the only other of his Swedish films I've seen is uh, The Phantom Carriage, which yeah. came out, I think, in 1920 or 21. I think it's 21. And I, yeah, and, uh, I have that one at home. I need to watch that. Yeah, Criterion released that a few years ago. And, and that's pretty good. It's also got a, a strong social realist element in it, but there's also some kind of, like, magical bits to it as well because it's about like uh, uh, Seastrom himself stars and he plays like this uh, kind of uh, uh, drunken scoundrel who is about to die and meets death and they go around and he sees like some poor woman who's suffering and he feels bad. After Phantom Carriage, Phantom Carriage was a big like international hit. After that he moved to the US and directed a few movies there and I've seen some of those. He did uh, He Who Gets Slapped with Lon Chaney which is a really cool really kind of twisted... I like Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney movie. And then I've seen two of the ones that he did with Lillian Gish, a uh, version of The Scarlet Letter, which is pretty good, and then The Wind, which is which is my favorite. And it's one of the, the greatest of all silent movies. It's where Lillian Gish gets trapped in this marriage she's not really happy about and then gets tortured by the wind. Nice. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Only Lillian Gish could pull off being tortured by the wind. She's amazing. She's pretty great. I would have preferred Lillian Gish in this movie. But I would prefer Lillian Gish in every movie, so that's not really fair. I thought Hilda Borgstrom, who plays Ingeborg, I think I think she's fine. I think she really, I I think she's strongest at the end of the movie when she's playing uh, insane. Basically, what happens is, uh, like you said, she gets taken to this, you know, uh, the poorhouse where she's, you know, forced into work there, and. Um, then she finds out her kids are sick, and she she escapes. She's basically a prisoner there, but she escapes. She goes and sees her child, but then she gets caught, um, and basically then goes insane. And she well, the, oh, on, what? on visiting day, her her youngest child, the the baby is maybe like a year and a half, two years old. Uh, the foster mom brings uh, the kid to visit her. And, and it doesn't recognize her, and that drives her insane. Yeah, she ends up caring for first a, a little doll that she made um, and treating it just like a child. And then uh, it flashes forward 15 years uh, into the future where one of her children who, you know, lived and um, worked, worked on, on a, a steamboat uh, comes back to see his mom after 15 years. He's a grown man now, and he comes to see her. And she's all frazzled, and she's holding this long, like, two-by-four that she's treating just like a child. And it's like the most depressing thing you've ever seen, seeing her cooing at this, you know, inanimate object. Yeah, I thought I thought her performance in that last scene was was really incredible. And, like, for the rest of the movie, I just thought, you know, she was kind of okay. But this this last scene where, where the son, uh, where she doesn't recognize the son, and then he shows her a picture that she had given him when, of her of her yeah. when when he went off into foster care and then kind of like the reality of the situation slowly dawns on her and like she gets her wits back about her and then there's so many emotions going through her face at the time there's like sadness and surprise and fear and wonder and more sadness and then finally <laughs> this weird kind of uh, joy and it's it's really really moving and it's it's terrific yeah she does a really good, a great job of that and it, you know the movie's really pretty depressing, but it, you know there is that. It's nice that there's that little bit of hopefulness at the end of this movie, where she kind of comes out of this fog, and you know she's reunited with at least some of her family and stuff. So it's nice that the movie wasn't because it's bleak for about you know ninety five percent of its runtime. 
you know. But yeah, it was nice that it just did. It didn't end with making you want to kill yourself. It's so bleak, and yeah. and I I generally don't care for for these kinds of movies that are that are so depressing because I'm like life life is depressing enough. I don't really need to see it in a movie. <laughs> Your life is depressing, and, yes, especially you know a movie that just like contrives every scenario possible to just make the worst case scenario for yeah. for this woman. Like they, you know, it's it's wouldn't be a problem that her husband dies except they just took out this massive loan to open a store and then even still they would have been able to to survive running the store if their clerk wasn't you know ripping them off in order to flirt with pretty girls and even then they would have been fine if she could have worked in the store but no she's sick yeah you know, it's just one thing after another. And then, you know, maybe the kids would be fine. But, no, of course, one of them gets sick. Right. And, yeah. You know, it's just... It's pretty relentless. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, it's kind of phony. <laughs> Which, when you're making, like, a social problem film, for me, phoniness is just the worst. I, I hear you. I hear you on that. Um, you know, well... So, so for you in something like a, a, a melodrama, that's fine because it's so over the top. But this is trying to get a, a point yeah, across. Yeah, it's, it's trying to you know make an argument, and, and this film actually did succeed in like starting a, a, a conversation in Sweden about the social safety net, and and you know now Sweden is one of like the best welfare states oh, yeah. in, in the world. So something like this would be impossible, and it's not you know all entirely due to this film or the play that it was based on, but. You know, it was part of, oh, yeah. of moving society forward. You just wish it hadn't been so uh, histrionic about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. And, you know, it, crazy things like this happen in reality, but it's just... I know. It, it, yeah. It, it checks everything off, you know, in its box of uh, drama, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like all they needed was like a puppy to like get run over by a car or something right. and it would have been you know a complete misery that might have been the original cut you never know yeah maybe that that got lost yeah <laughs> i i you know the little kid the the child that doesn't recognize her i thought that kid did a really good job because i i usually kids in movies are annoying to me you know because they're they're made to I don't know. They, they they seem phony if we're talking about phoniness here. But Seastrom does a really great job of making this kid exist in in the family life, um, and I and it's a really great and obvious thing to do. But the kid's only in a few scenes. But every time the kid's in a scene, the direction was go pick that thing up. And so he would film the kid. Yeah, there's like a, a great shot where like the kids have gone to bed and the husband and wife are talking. And they're so happy because they they've got this business loan. And then like the kid comes in and takes a pillow and yeah, and then walks away. And you know it's just one shot. Like all the kids have gone to bed and then the husband and wife are talking and and then the kid comes in and they look at the kid and they're like, oh, you're so cute. And the kid <laughs> goes back and you know. And it just makes it feel more uh, real. And the kid yeah. is also the one that gets the, you know picks up the letter that says that they received the loan. You know and. Seastrom takes the time to show the kid walking over and picking up its little doll first, and then, oh, what's this? It picks up the ladder and walks it back, and, you know, the kid has a purpose, and yeah. it really works. One of, one of my favorite shots is, is, uh, is when that, the little baby is, is going away into, into foster care, and it kind of shows the kinds of things that you can do with this uh, uh, tableau-style framing. It's got uh, Ingeborg in, in the foreground and, and the, the kid with its new foster mom. 
in the background and, and Ingeborg and the kids say goodbye and Ingeborg kind of collapses in the foreground with like her head down on the table and she's crying and she's looking towards the camera whereas the kid is is being carried off through a door in the back of the frame and it's all in in focus and we see the kid waving goodbye right to Ingeborg but she's not seeing it it's it's for us right and it's just heartbreaking yeah and this little, kid <laughs> this little waving, baby but it's you know, his mom isn't isn't seeing it, right? So yeah, and and that kind of use of space of using like the entire frame and the background and whether the characters are looking in relation to the camera is the kind of thing that you can do without cutting into like a, a close up right. of the kid waving, like uh, Charlie Chaplin would do in uh, a few years later in the kid, the kid right? Uh, where there's a similar kind of goodbye scene, and there's cuts to close-ups, and it's it's still emotionally wrenching, but it's well, that's totally partly because Jackie Coogan was <laughs> yeah really good actor, but yeah, 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 it's but totally it's, different. it's the yeah. same approach, or it's a different approach, but it, it creates the same effect. That's the thing is nowadays going to a close-up is is kind of a cheat. A lot of the times, you know, like hack directors will do it because they they can't sell the emotion any other way. So they'll go to, you know, a master like Chaplin knows what he's doing. I mean, obviously sure. the greatest close-up of all time is at the end of City Lights or whatever. But yeah, showing it here just as part of the scene um, where there's other things going on and just having it be there um, is very effective and, and works for the whole reality of the film. You know, I, I'm probably, you know, pes- overly pessimistic about the state of contemporary Hollywood, but it seems to me that there's not a whole range of of options that a, a director can use. Like, they they pretty much all look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you won't see a mainstream Hollywood film use that kind of framing. If anything, you'll see the complete opposite in something like uh, Les Miserables, which came out last year, which was... All, all close in close-up. Up. Yeah. And when you're when you're shooting all in close-up, close-ups are, are great for emphasis. And that's what, uh, around the same time as Ingeborg Holm, you know, G.W. Griffith is, is kind of pioneering the use of close-ups with William Gish. But close-ups are great when used for emphasis. But when you use it in every scene, it doesn't have that power anymore. It's right. just always in your face. It's always at 11. You need, you know, the twos and threes in order to make the 11 more powerful. Absolutely. I agree with you completely on that. So, uh, well, where we do see uh, this kind of style of filmmaking is in uh, in art cinema and, like, the festival circuit, especially with, like, uh, films influenced by, like, the Taiwanese New Wave, like Ho Xian or, or Chai Ning Liang. And it's also, it's become kind of a cliche in, in art house movies that they're going to be long takes and long framing and no close-ups. But the ones that do it well are, you know, utilizing those long takes and the spatial relations between the characters. The ones who do it poorly are just kind of just setting the camera there. Yeah, they're just kind of lazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, like, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's always going to be somebody that does one extreme or the other really well, mm-hmm. but most of the time it's pretty hacky yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, there's the scene when she, uh, Ingeborg escapes from the, uh, the workhouse and she ends up at the house of one of the foster parents, um, who hide her because the, uh, the cops have been informed that she's escaped or whatever. And it was so funny watching that scene because it so reminded me of the opening of Inglorious Bastards. Like, it was like, 
Yeah, I, it's, you it's, wonder it's, if Tarantino. I mean, I mean, it's 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 a it's not a totally um, off the wall idea to do to hide someone in a basement, but the way it played out, it was very intense, like it was in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, I don't. I I think it's uh, it's kind of presaging the kind of thing that you saw a lot in World War Two of people hiding other people. Uh, I don't know that Tarantino would be like, you know, specifically referencing this film as right. more just like a general idea of somebody hiding in your basement. Right. But, it is, you know, it's like a country house. Um, there's a trap door. You know, she goes down. I mean, you know, um, and then she escapes out the back just like uh, Shoshana does, you know, and they, it's, it's you know, it's weird. Okay. <laughs> it's possible. This doesn't really seem like a, a Tarantino. I don't think movie. so either. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't think Tarantino's watching Ingeborg Holm. That is possible. You never know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I definitely got the kind of the the presaging the uh, the World War Two kind of thing. And this is like pre World War One, you know. Right. So, you know, maybe this is like a European tradition of hiding people in your in your attic or your basement. Maybe it's, maybe it goes well, I'm going to Germany next summer, so I'll so. let you know if someone just randomly throws me down in the basement. Cool. <laughs> well, with that, we're gonna listen to. Are we gonna listen to some something from Berlin? Yes. Hey, speaking of Germany, we started with uh, the kids. From uh, Lou Reed's album Berlin, and here is uh, Caroline Says Part 2. Caroline Says As she gets up from the floor You can hit me all you want to But I don't love you anymore While biting her lip Life is meant to be more than this And this is a bum trip But she's not afraid to die
Okay, welcome back to the show. Um, the big news this week uh, isn't really uh, cinema-related, but uh, Lou Reed did pass away, um, singer-songwriter from the Velvet Underground and, you know, solo stuff. And, uh, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, Lou Reed's up there, you know, with Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and, you know, um, a lot of those guys. Those guys have been around so long, you just kind of expect that they will continue to be around. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, we've all, I'm sure, gone through our own Velvet Underground phases. You know, mine was, you know, I think I was 16 or so, and my friends and I all discovered the Velvet Underground. And I remember really well just listening to this, like, mixtape we made of, you know, what we thought were the Velvet Underground hits, you know, <laughs> um, over and over and over again, you know, just driving, you know, to and from San Francisco listening to that stuff. And, you know, it's a huge part of my life. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the Velvet Underground box set is probably the best box set ever made. I mean, what's going to top it, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah it's I'm, a bummer. Yeah, I, I was in college when I first listened to the, to the Velvet Underground and, and a friend had the, uh, the live with the Roman numerals mm-hmm. record. And I just listened to that over and over again and then listened to all like the actual love and underground albums. I didn't really get into, to Lou Reed's solo stuff until, until much later, but, uh, you know, the Velvet Underground and Nico, everybody loves that album with good reason. It's one of the, the best albums ever. And I think, I think Transformers is right up there and, you know, that's the other kind of obvious Lou Reed choice, but it's obvious for a reason. It's, yeah. It's a great album. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, his solo stuff is, is spotty and I haven't really delved into all of it, but yeah, Transformers great. Um, well, there's 30 years of, of solo stuff versus like four Velvet Underground albums. Right. Three, depending on how you count. It's four. <laughs> it's four. Uh, I, I mean, I know if Mo Tucker's not involved, it shouldn't be, but anyway. You know what's funny though is the last Lou Reed album that came out was that collaboration with Metallica that came out year yeah. ago or two years ago, Lulu, that was just cr- like panned across the board. So I was like, I'm not going to touch this thing, you know? Um, the only person I know who said anything nice about it was uh, Dale Crover, drummer for the Melvins, um, who listed it as his favorite album of that year. And I was like, really? I don't know. <laughs> but when Lurie died, I went to the website and kind of streamed some of it. And I'm not saying it's good, but... It has this weird kind of Captain Beefheartiness to it that's actually kind of interesting. Like, you know, Lou's doing his poetry thing and Metallica's chugging away in the background. And it's kind of, I mean, it's not great, but at least it's interesting. I, I fear we're like entering this age where all of these these icons, the, the ones that are still around from the, from the 60s and the 70s are going to start dying off. And this is just like the first of a snowball because there's David Bowie, Mick, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. All of these guys are really old. Don't forget Ringo. Ringo Starr. Yeah. I mean, when Ringo goes, you know, it's, it's over for me. But um, no, I've said for years, you know... If, if when Dylan and, and Leonard Cohen go, uh, I'm taking the day off. It's it's a it's a sick day. Like I, I I'm not, I, it's 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 too much for me. Um, it, you know. So yeah, we're definitely getting to that point where that first wave of you know influential pop musicians are are uh, you know nearing the end of their lifetimes. But let's. I mean, but, you know, I saw Leonard Cohen a couple years ago. And he's he's older than Lou Reed by by over a decade, 
And he played four hours. I mean, the guy just goes crazy. Bob Dylan still does like 200 shows a year. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen, Lou Reed had some film appearances. I haven't really seen any of them. He didn't do too think. many. Uh, the, the one that's really memorable for me is this movie called Blue in the Face, mm-hmm. which was kind of a, uh, director Wayne Wang made this movie called Smoke, which was an adaptation of, of a couple Paul Auster stories, all kind of set around this uh, smoke shop in, in Brooklyn with, uh, run by Harvey Keitel. Uh-huh. Uh, and while he was making that movie, like people kept like dropping by the set. So he filmed like these little sketches with them. And there's like Michael J. Fox and Roseanne Barr and, uh, Jim Jarmusch and, and Lou Reed. And, uh, Jarmusch's monologue is, is like about, uh, about smoking and how awesome it is to smoke cigarettes. And he's like, you know, just recounting like his history of smoking. And it's really funny and it's really cool. And Jarmusch is, is awesome. Yeah. Of course. Uh, but Lou Reed is there too, and he's basically just talking about Brooklyn and like this neighborhood and how it's changed over the years and like his experience of the city. And it's really cool and it's really funny, and and he's totally charming and everything you want Lou Reed to be. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I there are a few things that he's been involved with, um, and actually, it's not my rep pick for this week, so I'll talk about it now. But I was looking for rep stuff, and uh, the new Beverly. Um, in Hollywood is going to be running a tribute to Lou Reed. They're going to do a double feature and they're going to show Julian Schnabel did, um, a documentary of, um, the, the Berlin, Berlin live. Yeah. That like 30 years after it came out or whatever, um, which is supposed to be really interesting and really cool. Um, and then get crazy, um, a movie from 1983, which I guess, I don't know that Lou Reed had something to do with it. Uh, it's got a bunch of, it's got Malcolm McDowell, Dan, Daniel Stern. And I think Lou Reed has a small, bit in it but uh, Malcolm McDowell and Daniel Stern yeah you know that's and Ed Bagley Jr. so you know so that's coming up in a week but uh you know nothing will top his music no uh in in other news this week there's uh we have a couple bits about uh former film critics for the Chicago Reader uh first is that Jonathan Rosenbaum has a new website it was jonathanrosenbaum.com and it was really ugly and kind of hard to read and now it's jonathanrosenbaum.net and it looks much brighter. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, so you should go check that out. Rosenbaum is is one of my favorite critics and has been for a long time. Even though, you know, I I don't know how you judge critics, but I I very rarely care if I agree with them or not. I I like critics that that teach me something. I always learn something from Rosenbaum, even though like his actual judgments tend to not really agree with mine. Yeah, I like Rosenbaum. I mean, I've only really read. Um... His Wells stuff. Um, he's done. He's written a few books on Orson yeah, Wells. Yeah, he, he edited the the interviews with Bogdanovich and Wells, and then he, I think he wrote or he put out a book that was like a, a compendium of stuff that he had written about Wells. Right. Well, I read both of those, and that I think that's the extent. And you know, obviously, um, for Wells scholarship and stuff, I mean, the guy's pretty great. But no, I agree with you. Like, I don't want to just read somebody that I completely agree with. I mean, that, what's the point of that? I'm going to read myself if I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah, so one of, some of the, the first, like, serious criticism I ever read were, were his collections, uh, uh, Placing Movies and Movies as Politics, which are just collections of reviews he had written over, like, 30 years of being a film critic. And, uh, you know, a lot of movies that I hadn't seen before, some I ended up watching and ended up loving, and some I ended up not liking at all. But yeah. I always learn something from a, a Rosenbaum review, which is 
which is what I want from a film critic. And uh, so now he's got a website. Hey! Uh, and the other is uh, the critic that Rosenbaum replaced at the Chicago Reader, uh, Dave Kerr, who for the last several years has been the DVD critic at the New York Times. I think he's been, I think it's been like a decade now. Yes, yeah, been yeah. quite a while. Uh, is, uh, is leaving the Times and is taking a job as like the, the programmer at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, which also means that his blog is going down, and the blog—it's not really—it's not really a blog in any kind of traditional sense of of the word. It, he uh, would basically like post a link to that week's New York uh, New York Times DVD review, and then his comment section would just be like this fascinating mix of of critics and cinephiles and and academics who would all argue about the movies and. I read this this website religiously for for several years, and I learned so much about film, and it was just a, a fantastic resource. And now it's going away. And now it's going away. But apparently, uh, uh, Peter Labuza from the uh, the Cinephiliacs podcast is is saving it all. So that is a heroic effort, and if he succeeds, he should get the uh, the Nobel Prize for, <laughs> for internet film criticism. So he's got my vote. <laughs> Go, Peter. Yeah, no, that's that's great because you don't you know that's the thing is you, you don't want to lose these threads and and you know most comment sections are just garbage obviously but um, there are there are places where it's a tr- it's a really a community and and people are exchanging ideas and and teaching one another and I think that's great yeah and they're not just like anonymous you know people on the internet like Joe Dante hung out in the comment section there and and Kent Jones mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Joseph McBride you know. Like well-known, respected critics, Ted Gallagher would pop in every once in a while. It, no, it was it was, uh, it was fantastic. Uh, and Kerr himself was a terrific critic with just like this vast knowledge of film history. Uh, when we were doing the the Metro Classics every week, I would I would like read through like different reviews of the film we were playing to put on our website as like advertisements. And uh, uh, Dave Kerr's uh, capsule reviews were one of the best resources for those because in just like three or four sentences, maybe a hundred words, he would just perfectly capture everything you would want to say about a movie. And that's a really difficult skill and, and nobody is better at it than him. Yeah, he's great. Well, you know, best of luck to him on his future endeavors. Yeah. Uh, he'll be great, you know, programming too. So. Yeah, unfortunately we won't get the benefit of that because we live 3,000 miles away from MoMA. Yeah. If you want to send in your donations for us to go to New York uh, and just watch movies, you know, send them our way. We'll take it. <laughs> All right. So our person of the week this week is Burt Lancaster, who is celebrating his 100th birthday, or he would be if he was still alive. From beyond the grave. Yeah, we are celebrating <laughs> the uh, centenary of the creation of Burt Lancaster. <laughs> and uh, he was, he's one of the, the great... Hollywood actors, and you know nothing of his work. I yeah, I really you know, I feel like I'm I'm well versed in a lot of cinematic eras and careers. You know, I've at least dipped my toes into you know the big names, and the only Burt Lancaster credit that I am familiar with is uh, Field of Dreams, and that's a shame. <laughs> that is I a, know that is a real shame. I'm sorry. I, I don't know how it happened. I used to to not care. For Lancaster, uh-huh. uh, other than Field of Dreams, which is the first time I saw him, and, and I liked him in Field of Dreams, he's good. Uh, but I used to get him confused with Gregory Peck, who was uh-huh. uh, also in a movie around that same time called uh, Other People's Money, which is a, a bad movie uh, with Danny DeVito and Penelope Ann Miller. 
Uh, oh, those were the days, weren't they? <laughs> so I used to get them mixed up because they're like two old like Hollywood guys, and, and Gregory Peck I just don't like. So I would always kind of loop Lancaster in with with him. Like they won Best Actor, I think, back to back years for Elmer Gantry and, and To Kill a Mockingbird, and and Peck is just kind of boring. It's funny you could say that because I used to. I don't anymore, obviously, but I used to lump. Gregory, I used to confuse Gregory Peck and Cary Grant, you know, before I had seen wow. their movies. Well, just because I was a kid, you know, yeah, and so, sure. you, you know, you hear these names and you see these faces, but you don't place them or whatever. So it took me a while until I started actually watching Cary Grant movies and being like, oh, this guy's awesome. Yeah, you know? that, I mean, that's confusing. That's like confusing like a, a, a twig with a sparkler. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and then like the 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 next Burt Lancaster movie I saw was was Separate Tables, which is a movie that David Niven won Best Actor for, which I did not like at all, and, and I didn't like Lancaster. He just like seemed stiff and boring and and dull. Uh, but as I got older and, and watched more movies, Lancaster is amazing. Like he's 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 tall and blonde and square jawed, and he's like everything you expect like a handsome movie star to be. But he's like wildly adventurous in, in the kind of roles he would take on and the projects he would pursue, and he has far more range than you would think. Like he he plays like a, a pirate in the Crimson Pirate, and he he started life as like an acrobat, much like uh, Cary Grant did actually. Uh, so he he'll do all these like acrobatic stunts, but he'll also be like a romantic lead in, in From Here to Eternity, and he can be like a kind of a, a dirty and amoral like in a, a western like Veracruz with uh, with Gary Cooper. He's he's terrific, and and probably his best performance, his most famous, is in The Sweet Cell of Success, where he plays this this totally vicious and evil gossip columnist, and he's. He's so quick with this uh, really sharp Clifford Odette's dialogue. He's he's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I've been meaning to see a number of his movies for years. Like, I wanted to see The Killers. Um, From Here to Eternity, I read the book, you know, like five years ago, which I loved. And if anybody's seen The Thin Red Line, um, Terrence Malick actually, even though he said <laughs> he, he adapted The Thin Red Line, he actually took most of the stuff that appears in the movie... Uh, from the other James Jones novel, uh, *Into Eternity*, yeah, um, and so I've been meaning to see the movie of that for the longest time, and I'm not against Burt Lancaster. I just, you know, one of those blind spots for me. So I will definitely check out his stuff. Yeah, and uh, two more I want to mention before we move on. Uh, one is uh, uh, *The Train*, which in the in the early 1960s there were a lot of these kind of action blockbusters with all-star cast something like uh, uh, the guns of Navarone or something uh, and the train is kind of in this in this vein it's directed by John Frankenheimer and it's got this big cast with like Jean Moreau and, and a bunch of other people and it's it's much like uh, the uh, Clooney movie you were talking about coming up where uh, oh, Nazis are trying to steal art and, Monuments and uh, Lancaster is like the head of this uh, resistance group trying to prevent them by blowing up the train uh, that's a really cool really taut action movie much Sounds different cool. than like the kind of bloated mess that the Guns of Navarone is even you know setting aside Gregory Peck's problem <laughs> uh, and the other is uh, Lucino Visconti's uh, The Leopard which is just one of the great films of the 1960s and, and Lancaster plays this uh, kind of aging uh, Italian prince as uh, Italy is unifying unifying, and the aristocracy is kind of being put out to pasture and he's just kind of this this relic 
of the the dignity and nobility and also kind of the, the decadence and uselessness of, of the, the ruling class. And he's great in it, even though he's dubbed in Italian. So he's, what? He's still fine. Anthony Quinn was dubbed in La Strada. Yeah. Didn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, see, you need to see those movies. I will. I promise. I'll, I'll watch one Burt Lancaster movie between now and next week. Okay. I promise. Okay. Is he in Aliens? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's now time for our Cinema Central Social Problem films, and I did not uh, remember the one that I was thinking of, but I thought of another one that I think is, is uh, will fit pretty well. So why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay, uh, well, my pick is... Uh... A documentary, which, you know, when we're talking about social problem movies, that's, you know, those are a dime a dozen. But I think this is probably if, one of the best, if not the best, um, that I've ever seen. Uh, and it's Harlan County, USA, um, from uh, director Barbara Koppel, um, which I actually didn't see until a couple years ago. I watched it for um, this class I was taking. And it's just absolutely devastating. It, it, it uh, follows this miners' strike uh, in 1974. Four-ish. The movie's from 76, but I think it took a couple years to um, complete. And it's it just... Oh, 1973, excuse me. Um, in southeast Kentucky. And it just shows, you know, these workers trying to get the most basic, <laughs> um, you know, of benefits and even just self-respect and how the business just tries to thwart them every step of the way. And there's some... Larger than life villains in this movie. I mean, <laughs> it's it's shocking how evil some people can be. Um, Doesn't somebody like take a shot at Cobb yeah. at one point? Yeah, I mean, there there's gunshots fired at these uh, strikers, and uh, and the movie is completely unflinching and um, emotionally just devastating. And uh, I I think it's just fantastic. The the music in that film is is, is the music is very incredible. good too. Yeah, I forgot about that. It's just kind of this uh, kind of bluegrass folk music from. Like the Kentucky yeah, area, that area, yeah, it's it's great. Have Have you seen uh, Justified at all, the TV series? I have. Uh, we watched uh, the first it's season set, it's or so, set largely in Harlan County. Yeah, well, his name is Harlan, isn't it? Isn't the character name Raylan? Raylan, that's right, Raylan Harlan, Raylan. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I watched the first part, uh, first season. It, it's fine. Yeah, it's interesting to to watch it having seen Harlan County, USA, and, and thinking of it as like uh, the same people like thirty years later. <laughs> right. Like you know these, these coal miners that that were striking, all the the mines are closed now, and they're all like dealing meth, right? <laughs> and trying to kill each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's a, it's a it's a pretty good series. Uh, so my pick there's. There's a lot of ways you can go with like a social problem film because there's a lot of films that are like you know there's this is a you know, this is a serious issue and people should take it seriously and, you know, films that deal with poverty and, like, you know, changing circumstances. But, I, you know, stuff like uh, like a Zha Zhenko movie. Uh, you know, contemporary China has problems in it. But that, that to me, isn't specific enough for a social problem film. Like, a, a social problem film, I think, is about a single problem and we should have a solution to it as opposed to just a... You picked Sicko, didn't you? I didn't. I picked... Uh, <laughs> I had a really clever choice that was going to be funny and, and awesome and weird, but I couldn't think of it. <laughs> uh, I couldn't remember it. Uh, so I'm going with uh, uh, Leo McCary's 1937 film, Make Way for Tomorrow, 
which was uh, was like Ingeborg Holm, was instrumental in creating or in getting the uh, social security system set up in the U.S. And it's about uh, uh, an elderly couple who uh, have uh, fallen into poverty and they need to sell their house and they have nowhere to live and they have no income anymore because they're old. And what ends up happening is that they have to go live with their kids, but none of their kids have enough room to take both of them. So they have to split them up. One has to go to like California and the other has to go to somewhere else. So it's the, the, the kind of last days of this, this couple that is still very much in love, but because of economic circumstances, they're forced to be apart. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, it stars uh, Victor Moore and Beulah Bondi, who were, were generally supporting actors in movies in the, in the 1930s and early 40s. But they, they get uh, 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 starring showcases here, and both of them are amazing. Beulah Bondi, in particular, is is just fantastic. And Leo McCary is a director who's more known for his comedies. Like, the, the next year he made The Awful Truth with, with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. That's one of the very best of the genre. He also, I think we talked about him when we did uh, Laurel and Hardy. He was instrumental in getting them together. But And Duck Soup. And Duck Soup, of course. Uh, but this is one of his best dramas. Like, he won the Oscar for Going My Way in 1944, I believe. This is a much better movie than Going My Way. And I like Going My Way. I should. I need to see it. It sounds just great. Yeah, it's really depressing. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) With that, we're going to listen to some more Lou Reed. This is him with The Velvet Underground and Nico with Venus and Furs. Yeah, and I actually, before we get to this, I I do want to say, you know, Venus and Furs is probably not my favorite Velvet Underground song, but the chord change in this song when it goes to I Am Tired, I Am Weary Mm -hmm. is my favorite change in all of music ever. I would not argue with that. Start mistress and cure his heart. that chord change amazing it was i just i it gives me chills um so now we're going to talk about the holy mountain which uh is a film from alejandro yodorowsky from 1973 um 
and it's this risque, shocking, you know, surreal kind of film. It's kind of broken up into three parts. The first part follows this Christ-like guy. You know, he's bearded, he's emaciated, he walks around, you know, shirtless and shoeless. Um, and he he comes across a number of sacrilegious, you know, happenings. <laughs> a lot of a lot of things going on. Um, that's the first third of the movie, roughly. Then he meets this uh, guy who's known as the Alchemist, who's played by the director Yodorowsky, um, who pairs or not pairs him, but uh, incorporates him with this group of seven powerful figures. And I'm going to list off what each one of these people does because I think it's awesome. One is uh, a fashion designer. One is a weapons uh, manufacturer. Uh, an artist, a toy maker, an economist, a police officer, and an architect. And these are kind of the people that are running the world, kind of, um, but it's all very out there um, and psychedelic and weird. And uh, Jesus Quixote, as I called the, <laughs> the main guy, who's known as the thief. The thief. Yeah. Uh, but Jesus Quixote is a much classier <laughs> name. Um, he... <laughs> He's even got his own Sancho Panza, um, you know, a quadriplegic uh, who kind of just hangs around periodically. Um, anyway, he joins this this cabal, and their plan is to scale the holy mountain, where they will uh, unseat these kind of timeless figures that rest up the, there. The, the nine wise men that rule the world. Right, and they're going to take over. Um, the movie's... You know, it's pretty bonkers. <laughs> it's pretty out there. A lot of, a lot of surreal and, you know, quote unquote shocking imagery. And, um, but it's also, you know, it's what I like about this movie is that, at least after the first section, it's it's not just out to shock. You know, there's so many movies that their only goal is to shock you, and this movie I think is so much more than that. I think you know it's. One, it's hilarious. I think there's some, I mean, there's some really laugh out loud moments in this thing. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's got a, a plot of sorts, you know. It's not just random crap yeah, thrown I, at you. I didn't know anything about this movie other than that Yodorovsky has this reputation for being weird. Yeah. So I expected, like, totally bizarre, you know, incomprehensible, avant-garde kind of crazy shit. And there's some, there's some weird stuff. Yeah. But this film is much more much more structured than I expected, and it's much more coherent than I expected. And and thematically, it actually fits really well with Ingeborg Holm because at heart, this is a social problem film. Oh yeah, like all of those those seven the seven figures that he meets and and teams up with, they they have little like short films where like they introduce themselves and talk about their lives. Like like I'm a toy maker, and and my job is to. Uh, teach kids to hate uh, Peruvians so that they'll invade Peru in 15 years because we figured out that that's the way that the government is going. We that might have been my favorite section in the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, we we too hate Peruvians. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's it's got very much these, like, little kind of short films about about social problems and and, and you know, actual, you know, real-world issues, and it just kind of pokes fun at them and, and kind of mocks them and takes them to surrealistic heights. So what, what it ends up being is it's, like, like you said, it's, it's, three, it's 
you know, just divided in, in thirds. The first third is basically just kind of a, a, a mockery of, of modern, uh, of the modern commodification of Christianity. The second third is this outlining of these seven social problem areas. And then the final third is like a, it's like a, a climb up on a quest yeah. movie. It's, it's like, like Lord, the Lord of the Rings. Of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like they, they bring the band together and then they set out on this quest. So it's... And they could do it under two hours. Yeah, it's really... Peter Jackson. It's really not that weird. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not. I mean, you know, when you break it down, like looking over my notes, you know, I, I when I was looking at it later, I was like, I wrote down in all sincerity... Jesus rides the hook up the obelisk, <laughs> which is something that happens in this movie. Um, yeah, you know, and and there are other other things. You know, uh, wall of testicles is another note of mine here. Um, but yeah, but with the, all of this, the alchemist weirdness, turns the thief's shit into gold. Right, that's another one of them. Literally, <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 they show the entire process of this happening. I and, mean, they, and some of these are really striking images, like the one with the, oh, yeah. the gold fish hook. Like, yeah, you have. Uh, it's like this village market and, and we spent the first third of the movie getting to know that everyone in this village is awful. Like even the, the tourists who come and like take photos of like the protesters getting shot by, by, uh, uh, death squads. Well, one of the funniest moments is that there's in that first section is there's a, uh, you know, blonde tourist who, um, ends up getting raped by a, a like a guard or, or right, but she's not she's not really raped she's like oh I know, I know. well he like throws her against the wall and she's like take a picture of me while I get raped by this guy you know um, you know there's there's you know there's weird stuff like that so he's like laid out the just the utter depravity of this society and then finally we see this giant tower and this gold fish hook comes down and they put like an offering of like food and, and uh, gold or whatever on, on the fish hook and the thief knocks it off and rides up it himself like because he's going to overthrow this power that's overseeing this kind of blasted world and that's this great sequence where he where he ends up in this tunnel with this white screen and he breaks through it and it's like a rainbow it's like a Wizard of Oz kind of thing. It's really, really striking just as an image, but it has a point to it. Well, yeah, it narratively, yeah, it absolutely has a point. Um, to me, that first third is the weakest part of the film, because for yeah, me... The, the satire is really broad. It's very broad, and like to me, you know, mocking religion, I mean, you know... I, th- I think maybe in the 40 years since it, it's become so prevalent or whatever, but, you know, it's it's like shooting fish in a barrel, you know, and, like, I just find religion really, really boring. So, like, <laughs> like doing all these things with Christ where, you know, he's, you know, eating his own face and, you know, his face is made out of cake. Well, they, they, they get him drunk and they make molds of, like, Jesus statues out of him and he wakes up and freaks out and destroys them all. Right. Um, <laughs> although there are, so, I must say, there are parts of that sequence that are really great. My favorite being the uh, the Toad and Chameleon Circus, yeah. where there are these, it, the uh, toads are... If I remember it's correctly, a, the, a, the chameleons a, are the natives. Yeah, it's a dramatization of the conquest of Mexico. Yeah, and the, the toads are yeah, the Spaniards. Um, and there's this little village, you know, that they that he created, um, and he puts these these animals in these costumes, and then this just ma- this massive wave of blood comes flowing through the screen. Yeah, 
that is some really cool stuff. And yeah. and it you know it works on a visual level. It works thematically. It's really spot on. And as a costume design level, can you imagine <laughs> making all of those little you know Aztec costumes for the chameleons? That's, it's great. That is some phenomenal work by the prop department. Um, yeah, but but that first section to me, you know, I would. I was thankful that it ended. You know, once it, once he climbs that that tower and breaks into that thing, then it really kicks into overdrive. And in particular, you know, the first section is mostly out on the streets, you know, and he's filming, you know, in real environments or whatever. But once he gets into this tower, then he gets the chance to do the set design stuff. Yeah. And oh my god. Yeah. The set design in this movie is Peerless. I mean, it's just amazing what he pulled off in this movie. Um, there are all these little rooms and chambers that these characters go to, you know, to do their ceremonies and um, and you know when, like you said, when they flash to these uh, these little vignettes of the the seven you know powerful leaders or whatever. Yeah, there's lots of like tarot imagery and eyeballs, and and I know nothing about about tarot, so there's like a whole level that the film is supposedly working on that I don't get at right. all. Uh, but that's fine, and, you know. Because it looks awesome. Yeah, it looks really cool. <laughs> yeah, it looks really great. I thought I thought the middle section got a little kind of schematic with the I'm I am Berg. I'm from Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or whatever. And then you know you have this story about this horrible person that that rules the world. I think I, part I got of, a little I got yeah. a little, I got a little sick of that. Like the one with the uh, the economist and and his wife who sits on the toilet is. That was the worst one. I agree with you on that. But the the one that you mentioned, the weapons or the toy maker one, yeah, uh, was just fantastic. Um, the artist one was great too. Where there's this giant, he builds this giant robotic vagina. Um, yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> that you have to uh, stimulate, and then when it orgasms, like it transforms into this other creature and it's got this little but, baby vagina but, but first but first he has like the chauffeur try it and, and the chauffeur can't can't do it he, he, he can't he, make he it can't work. work it so he like throws the uh the uh the big cylinder down and and <laughs> yells at the machine frigid <laughs> it's really funny it's a really funny movie yeah um, um but then the 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 final third when they're going on this the quest to the mountain i thought that was was pretty cool you get uh, again schematically. You get like different visions that each of the the seven people have of, of some kind of horrible thing. But the the best part is the woman who's in love with the thief who keeps following them all along the quest along with, with her, her chimpanzee with, with her chimpanzee friend. Yeah. And then at at the end, where I'm gonna spoil it here, uh, the the alchemist tells the thief to like go back, and he's like, "Are you stupid? This woman obviously loves you. Who cares about the?" <laughs> You know, at the top of the holy mountain, go be happy. Right, just go live your life. Yeah, and yeah. and the thief goes goes off, and and I think that's a great message. Oh well, I mean, if you're talking about spoilers, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil the whole thing. Well, the, because it takes a meta turn at the end. It takes a meta turn that is is perfect. You know, the alchemist um, surprises the remain you know the remaining group. You know, the the thief is left, and then somebody else dies at some point. So they're you know, but the, most of them are still there, and they they get to the top of the mountain. And they're sitting there. He, he dies, but he comes back. The person, right? the person that dies. Yeah, there's nine left at the end. Oh, okay. there's the seven plus the alchemist plus uh, his uh, assistant. I thought there was ten. Anyway, there were ten total with the thief. With okay. The thief left. Okay. Um, so, 
They anyway, to, so they go to this table. They go to this table, and the alchemist says, I told you that I would reveal the secret to you, and I will not disappoint you. And watching this as a viewer, you're like, oh, man, how is he going to stick the landing on this? You know, like, this <laughs> What's is... the secret? <laughs> yeah, this is really a tightrope, you know, act that he's doing here, because if he fails, if he's acknowledging that he's going to reveal this big secret, and he and, and it's lame, then you're just going to hate the movie, you know? And Yodorowsky... Is like the secret is this is just a movie, and he's like pan back, and the camera pans back, and it shows them filming the scene, and it's so freaking cool. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, so is this the first Yodorowsky? Yeah, this is, this is the only oh, okay. Yodorowsky I've seen. This. I really want to see El Topo. I, you know, I had it at home for a while, and I had to return it. But uh, yeah, that's the other one that's got uh, that's got the big reputation. I don't really know much about him. He's Chilean, apparently. We learned yeah. just when trying to Slash figure out how to French. pronounce his name. Yeah, but I think this movie was made in Mexico. I'm yes. Sure. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's very good. Well, there's this new documentary that's coming out, Yodorowsky's Dune, because he okay. was he tried to mount a production of Dune um, that you know was apparently insane <laughs> uh, that never you know came off the ground. That sounds interesting too. Yeah, I mean it. It's got to be better than David Lynch's. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that Dune. Uh, have you read Dune? No. It's I don't really get the the hype for it, but you know it's interesting that the two directors that were attached to Dune at one moment were like the two most like surreal out there guys. Well, at the at the time, Lynch was coming off The Elephant Man, which was a more a more uh, normal right kind of movie. Yeah, so. but he he still had a razor head in his pocket at that point, you know. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So th- does this make you want to see more Yodorovsky? Are you? Yeah, I, w- I would see. I would see El Topo now coming yeah. off of this. I thought this was really cool. I thought it was really cool too. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so, one last thing I'm going to talk about is, um, there, like you said, there are all these great images and and um, jabs at pop culture and stuff. And I think the one that really resonated with me, and I think probably because comic books have become so popular um, cinematically nowadays, you know. Uh, there's a new Marvel movie like every two weeks and stuff. Um, but the toy maker on her assembly line, she pulls off this comic that she's created and it's perfectly detailed. I mean, in my review on Letterboxd, I compared this to, to Wes Anderson because every little detail is so perfectly realized. And there's this comic book that comes off the thing and it's got the greatest character of all time. His name is Captain Captain. And he just looks like, you know, a generic Captain America or, you know, uh, Shazam or whatever. Yeah. Um, And it's Captain Captain against the Peruvian monster. And if someone doesn't run with that and make an adaptation of it, I'm going to do it. I thought the the one with the architect was really prescient because he's uh, building homes for for poor people. And he says that uh, man doesn't need a home. All he needs is a shelter. So he builds these like little Little. tiny shelters for people, which Which, uh, are exactly like apodments, which are really controversial in Seattle right now. They're little tiny places where where people, uh, you know, just basically sleep. Right. Uh, Well, they're also shaped like coffins. But they end up being shaped like (laughs) coffins. Yeah. No, it's great. There's a lot of really smart ideas behind this movie. So... um, Oh, uh, also, oh God, there's so. I mean, you could just talk about every little bit of this movie, but um, the like uh, strongman that's in the uh, the little city when they when they dock, uh, and and he can go through the walls, and he goes, "I conquered the holy mountain horizontally." <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> and then he goes, "Boop." And <laughs> 
<laughs> I cannot conquer it vertically. I I love it. It's yeah, cool. That's good. And with Wait. that, more uh, Lou Reed. Okay, that was Sister Ray. Uh, obviously, not all of it, but uh, what's great about that song, and you know, I think a lot of people know the story. But um, when the Velvet Underground was recording uh, that song, when they were about to record it, they said, "We can only record this once because we are going to rock the hell out, and it's only one take, and that's the one that you get, and that's the one that's immortalized in history." And the great thing about it is, you can hear them competing for who's the loudest as the song goes on. And about halfway through the song, John Cale just cranks his organ up and it just, <laughs> just blows you out of the water. Um, and Lou Reed was really pissed about that, but uh, it's super awesome. So, <laughs> Sister A, my friend. Um, so next week, uh, we're talking about, you know, Veterans Day is coming up, so we're going to talk some World War One films. What are we going to talk about, Sean? Uh, we're going to talk about King Vidor's The Big Parade. Uh with uh, John Gilbert, one of the the uh, big hits of the silent era. And we're also going to talk about... The Red and the White. The Red and the White by uh, Hungarian director Miklos Jansko. Jansko? Here we are, butchering sure. pronunciations again on the George problems, Sanders show. We have problems with J's <laughs> on the George Sanders show. Uh, it's uh, it's not technically a World War One movie, depending on how you look at it, because it's more about like the Russian Revolution, which, you know... What's a fallout effect of World War One? So, you know what? It works for us. It's our show. It's from nineteen sixty-seven. We'll do what the hell we want. It's a war movie. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I've been meaning to watch this movie for a really long time. So, I'm glad I could accommodate that. Um, and then let's see. If you want to find us, we're on the internet at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Uh, at Twitter at uh, Geo Sanders Show and uh, email at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. Uh, if you are in Seattle this week, head over to the Grand Illusion on November 7th. 
that is one week from today as we are recording this, and see Jane Campion's The Piano, part of the uh, 2020 awards uh, series, uh, looking back at films of 1993. Uh, I recently rewatched The Piano, a movie that I saw 20 years ago and did not like at all. Uh, I loved it this time. Did it's, you? it's so much more fun and, and so much uh, more interesting than I thought it was. It's You were young and stupid. I was young and stupid. <laughs> it's a great movie. Go see it again if you haven't seen it before. Go see it again if you haven't seen it before. You, that's from <laughs> that's the quote on the DVD box. Uh, well, speaking of Seattle, uh, the day after at the Northwest Film Forum, there's going to be a double feature, uh, Forbidden Love double feature, and uh, they will be showing The Chase uh, from 1946, but the second half of that program is uh, Gun Crazy, which is actually a film we talked about on the show, I think, about ten weeks ago now. Yeah, it was like episode... I think it was eight or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, we both loved, and it's an awesome movie, so, you know, if you're in Seattle, go check out Gun Crazy. Absolutely. Uh, when was the last time we had George sing this out? It's been a several weeks now, but uh, it's been a couple weeks. George is going to have to, you know, wait again because we're going to have some more uh, Lou Reed here. Here's the demo uh, for Sheltered Life. Rest in peace, Lou. See you next week. The Sheltered Life, take two. Never been to London, never been to France Never wore a sorry, never learned to dance Never walked down to 42nd Street fairs Never smoked any tilted air Guess it's true what all the people say Gonna have to mend my old-time ways, yeah I guess it's true Guess I've led a sheltered life Never walked about on the streets at night Never got into an uptown fight Never smoked a hooker, never saw a rug Couldn't even squash a beetle bug Guess you I'm gonna have to change my ways Guess it's true what all the people say, yeah, I know it's true, guess I've led a sheltered life. Guess I won't get far Never learned to handle all the things that I've seen Maybe I'll grow up to be big and mean Guess it's true what all the people say Gonna have to change my old-fashioned ways Well, I guess it's true 
guess I've had a sheltered life.